Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. We got to uh, Matthew 26 this morning. I don't know if we need to do any kind of a review. Uh, we actually took like four hours to get to Matthew 26, but we talked about a lot of other things. And that's what I, I'm trying to relate the biblical message to people's everyday life. And uh, it's really a spiritual message, but you have to bring that spiritual presence into your physical life to in order to make a difference. You can't you know, it's not an emotional presence. It's a it's a spiritual presence. And a lot of people mistake the emotion for spiritual. And, uh, you, you know, the holy roller kind of approach and everybody gets ecstatic and all that stuff. And, of course, I can show you lots of examples of that amongst pagans at the time. We don't call them pagan, pagans anymore. Those people that were doing what the pagans were doing back then... Most of them we call Christians today <laughs> because uh, the modern Christian religion has more in common with what was called paganism back then than it does with what Christ was doing back then or what the early Christians were doing. And it's a shame. And I'd like them all to change and see it, but they're going to have to see more than they're seeing right now. And they're going to have to think different than they're thinking right now. But of course, that's the nature of repentance. Repentance is about thinking differently. So we'll just get right into 27. I've got a lot of footnotes, but I've actually created extra side pages so that we can go to that and get an idea of what's going on here during this. There are a few things that, you know, I'm still not convinced we got it right. You know, you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. You read the other, like, the Gospel of Nicodemus and the Gospel of Phillips and the Gospel of James. A lot of people are unaware of those Gospels. Are they authentic? Well, they're not in the Bible, but that doesn't mean you, you know, they, they call them Apocrypha. But your dictionary is Apocrypha. <laughs> your dictionary is not in the Bible. You use your dictionary to figure out what the Bible says. And you use you can use concordances and you can look at the Greek and you can look at the Hebrew. But we're not supposed to put our faith in men. We're not supposed to be respecters of men. And the King James Bible is a product of men. Now, I believe that the the inspiration of God is behind everything that goes on in the universe. But the reality is, the King James Bible, only the people we know were inspired, or you should know that were inspired, is the original authors. And in many cases, we don't even know who they are. And to some degree, Eusebius was probably inspired to put certain books in there, but it doesn't decrease the value of the other books. Because when it says all scripture is given of God, the King James Bible did not exist. But they were saying, and literally that's what it says, is all writings are given of God. And in a way, that's true. Even evil people out there are given of God. God allows this evil to come in the world. People choose to do evil. And God allows them to choose to do evil. He also allows you to do good. And if, like we were talking about this morning, if you fill yourself with the Holy Spirit, 
you will have an unseen protection against the evil of the world. It's not a guarantee everything good's going to happen to you and everything that happens to you is going to be good or or nice or comfortable. I'm sure the cross wasn't comfortable for Christ. And he was as close to good as you can get. But if you're if you're having a hard time, chances are you're being tested. If you're having a real hard time, it might be that you're failing the test. That you're not really seeing things. I mean, everybody who's got any little bit of age on them, they can look back and say, you know, if I hadn't have done things that way, if I hadn't have said that, if I didn't do this, if I didn't marry this person, you know, of course you have to be careful because you can start blaming everything on other people and then you're just back in the garden again or about to be tossed out. But the reality is, is that we make lots of choices and we have to pay the consequences of those choices. Unfortunately, there are billions of people making choices today in the world and we're all going to be a share of those consequences. But if you want God to really turn evil to good, you have to turn to the good. If you want God to hear your prayers, you have to hear the prayers of others. Because as you judge, so shall ye be judged. So, with all that said and in mind... uh, but we'll get get into 27, and we'll see where it leads us, because it, it too is a long chapter, but we're almost to the end of, you know, with chapter 28, we'll be to the end. We'll see how far we get. But again, one, it says, uh, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they had him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So that statement right there, if you know how jurisdictions work, and you know, like the imperial military weren't the ones who arrested him. It was the temple guards who came out and arrested him. And later on, we're going to see him go to Herod. And they mention soldiers when he goes to Herod. And so there's all kinds of soldiers here. There's the temple soldiers, there's Herod soldiers, and there's Pontius Pilate soldiers. Now, Pontius Pilate soldiers are to kind of keep an overall order, but it's like maybe a little bit difference between the U.S. Marshals, the local sheriff, and uh, the local traffic cop. You know, you've got these different jurisdictions. And if you follow one jurisdiction or you're you're doing something that violates one jurisdiction, one cop's gonna arrest you, the other one's gonna say that's out of my jurisdiction. I'm not I'm not gonna do anything with that because that's that's outside of my jurisdiction. So that's actually going on here. And when they say uh governor, there's Pontius Pilate's a governor, Herod's a governor. Their hegemon is the Greek word. So there's lots of governors. And when they say innocent, they may be talking about all kinds, although the word is often the same, they may be talking about innocent in certain contexts. All this is important to get a good perspective of what the trial is all about because the trial uh, is at least remotely related to the persecution of Christians. Because the question is, did they have a right to persecute Christians? When when Paul took his case before Agrippa and, and Festus, 
he won his case because he understood jurisdiction. Of course, Paul was a lawyer, so he had a better idea. But you can't hardly understand Paul unless you understand law. And the difference between a legal system and law. Legal system is a system that you create for yourselves. People join it. Now they have to follow the rules of that system, especially if they've taken benefits. If you don't take the benefit, you don't sign up, you don't necessarily have to follow the rules of that system. There may be certain systems. So like if you go to England, you want to drive your car down the road, you got to drive it on the left side. If you're from England, you come over here and you want to drive your car, you got to drive it on the right side. Well, you didn't necessarily sign any contract under those conditions. But there's the practical knowledge. Everybody over here is driving on the right side. Everybody over there is driving on the left side. And if you try to do something contrary to custom, you're endangering other people. And you don't have a right to go to a place that you, that doesn't have jurisdiction authority of you and have English people swerving off into the ditch because you want to drive on the other side of the road. You can't do that. So, but that's based on natural law applying a legal system because the legal system also agrees with the custom. You can find you can find roads in the United States where you don't have to drive on the right side. You can drive over on the left side. You say, well, where is that? Well, there, there's lots of roads in America, thousands of them, where you can drive on the left side. They call them one ways. <laughs> so you know, when you're on a one way road, you could because you're not you're not going to impede traffic. You're not going to cause people to swerve off. You're not going to threaten the safety of other people by driving on the left side because that's still within the parameters. But it's not about right and left. It's about what is safe and not safe. And, of course, that goes right back to the judgment of Moses that if you're creating hazards, you know, build a balcony, but you don't put a substantial rail around it, you could be held liable for the injury. And, of course, this is why people write building codes. But now, building codes have to, can be enforced not because somebody fell off your balcony, but because you violated the code. And you could be subject to the code because you don't really own your house. And you don't really own your house because you only have a legal title. And we go on and explain all this. The reason they can tax you on your land is you don't own it. They're, it's a use tax. Well, how can they tax you on the use of something that you own? Well, they can't. But you you told them that you had a legal title, and the legal title does not include the beneficial in, interest by definition. It's not a secret. It's just people are ignorant. So they don't understand that a legal title doesn't include the beneficial interest. And when you look up the word beneficial interest, it says the true owner of the property. That's not you if you have a legal title. You just told them you don't really own the property. You own the legal title. And a legal title is only an apparent title. So that's a little quick picture of jurisdiction. If you're unfamiliar with that, we have articles up. You can go read that and figure it out. But Jesus doesn't have a contract with them. He's not endangering anybody. As a matter of fact, he's blessing people. 
He has an entire network of charity. People don't realize that. He had the 70 ministers. He had the 120 in the upper room. He had the 12 apostles. But he was creating a network that was an extension of the network that was being created by John the Baptist of tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they were taking care of the needy of society. And we see right away in Acts, that's what they're doing, launching all over the Roman Empire. A system where, you know, they're having trouble over here, and we're sending supplies, and we're having trouble over there, and we're sending supplies. And we know we might have a need for more supplies, like in Syria or something, maybe in Pompeii, after the volcano. So, they have people donating funds. Galatian, Corinth. And those funds are going to these ministers. And the ministers are going through checkpoints. See, if you don't know that if you went through any one of these Roman checkpoints, which is usually harbors, uh, but sometimes roads, then you're carrying goods to be sold or to be given. They're going to tax you on that. They're going to take a portion of whatever it is you're carrying. You ha- or you, you have to pay them one or the other. They'll either take a portion of it or you have to pay them a sum of money based on the value. I mean, they still got that. I just told recently my my granddaughter knitted a hat out of real wool and put it all together. It was really nice. I mean, she's just a, a, an amazing artist. And they was going to send it to her aunt in England. And they asked us at the post office, so what, what's it worth? And they, well, we did, I mean, it's a gift. But, uh, well, what's the dollar value? And they, they pressed for a dollar value and somebody said 50 bucks. You have to pay 20%, I think it was 20, maybe 30% on the 50 bucks because it's a duty. It's, it's crossing the border. In order to receive the gift, they've got to pay that money to get the package. <laughs> you know, 20, 30 bucks. <laughs> Yeah, we send them a bunch of gifts, we could bankrupt them. <laughs> but that's that was going on in Rome and all over the Roman Empire. But the church was exempt because it's a religion. And religions are taking care of the needy of society. That's the social welfare. If you were a member of the Temple of Roma, that's where you go for your social welfare. And the Temple of Roma and... Judea could send to the Temple of Roma in Corinth and the Temple of Roma in Ephesus. And when it crossed through the borders, they couldn't tax it. They had to let it go duty-free. Augustus has made that law. You don't know that? Then you don't know why it was so important that Paul and Barnabas take supplies where there was a dearth. Because the church is exempt from that taxes. Still today. You know, churches are exempt from sales tax. They're supposed to be exempt from property tax. They're supposed to be exempt from a lot of taxes. And people don't like that. Some people don't like that. A lot of the churches like it. But of course, back then, the church was taking care of all the social welfare for Christians. And the pagan temples were taking care of all the social welfare for pagans. And that, But the means and method of obtaining the bread to do that was was different in the church established by Christ than it was in the church established by, you know, Caesar through their temples. They're they're called out. See, their priests were supposed to be under vows of poverty. They they had no estate, but they had the right 
to a portion of whatever is collected. Just like in Egypt. The priests were not subject to taxes. Everybody in Egypt had to pay one-fifth of the value of their labor, whatever they worked and did, had to go to the government. But the priests were exempt in Egypt. We know that. It says it right there in the Bible. If you don't know that, your preachers aren't either teaching you or not studying properly. We explained it in our, our story of Exodus. They were exempt. And, and it says it right there in the text. It's not something I made up. So this idea of priests being exempt has been around for thousands of years. Ministers of a church practicing a religion are exempt. They've been exempt. The problem is, is that, but in the last 200 years, they've changed the definition of religion. Religion used to be the performance of that duty, you know, to take care of the needy, the widows and orphans and needy of your society. And now the definition of religion is what you think about God. And like we saw in Matthew 26, that they sung some hymns. And, and uh, I have a link on the page to, to go find out what the Song of the Lamb is. Because the Song of the Lamb and the Song of Moses are, are in harmony. But uh, most people aren't in harmony with the Song of the Lamb and the Song of Moses. They're in harmony with the Song of Nimrod and Cain and Pharaoh. Because they covet their neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority. So they're in harmony with Caesar. They're not in harmony with Christ. They're not in harmony with the Lamb. And uh, we're going to see where this causes them to shed innocent blood. So like I said in in verse 2 it says, And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate didn't arrest him. Didn't send Roman soldiers to arrest him. That's not, that's important. But they're taking him to the governor. Why are they taking him to the governor? I can show you all kinds of, uh, commentaries that say because the Pharisees, the, the Jews didn't have the right to execute a prisoner. That's just nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Didn't you even read the Bible? They executed Stephen. They didn't take him to Caesar. They were going to execute the woman who was accused of adultery. They were going to stone her right there. They they were taking her before Pilate. You're telling me every time somebody got arrested, they were going to go before Pilate? You're going to wear that guy out just like you just about wore out Moses. No, that the only thing that's going to go before Pilate is, is Jesus Christ the lawful king? Or maybe if you're real insurrectionist and battling against Roman troops. Now they're going to mention insurrectionists, and today is January 6, 2024. Insurrection Day, right? So what is insurrection? But anyway, we'll get to that when we get to that. So now in verse 3, it says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, meaning Jesus, when he saw that he was condemned, that Jesus was condemned, he repented himself, and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. You know, go your way. See to your own way. And verse 5, he says, And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now there's two accounts. 
maybe hanged himself, maybe he dashed his brains out in a rock or quarry. It's, there's just evidently two accounts. And, and you can look at, again now, Matthew was probably written at least in Hebrew, if not Aramaic, and then translated to the Greek. I mean, our earliest copy is in the Greek, and we already seen where the difference between Simon the leper and Simon the jar maker actually is likely a product of the fact that the original text was dealing with the Aramaic and Greek languages, which the same spelling in one spells leper, and then the other one spells jar maker, which is really going to be important by the time we get through John. Because even though we don't see the name Simon the jar maker, he seems to be in John, carrying tons of oil. I mean, a a a vast uh, value of oil. If if one Roman pound, twelve ounces, was worth a year's wages, what's a hundred pounds of oil worth? It might be different oil, but that's what they say. A hundred pounds he was carrying. And he wasn't doing his servants were helping him carry it. So how in the world are they doing that? And what are they doing? And where did he get this oil? And who is he? And why is he bringing the oil? And why is this Mary Magdalene got oil to anoint him? I thought that was some prostitute that came running in, unnamed prostitute. And Jesus says, "Take this and have it at my burial." And who's that as burial? That's Mary Magdalene. And so, yeah, so now we got Mary Magdalene as maybe the woman that came in. But in another gospel, it says a different woman is at his feet because this one who came in and anointed him, she was down at his feet, crying on his feet that she was sorry about something and drying his feet with her hair. So he was at her his feet. And we know that's a different Mary. Or are they different Marys? Or are they all the same Mary? Well, of course, some theologians and commentaries don't want you to think they're all the same one. But maybe they are. And, you know, my concern is that you just know really what's going on. But you have to understand what innocent blood is and try to be a part of that. The same as oil. I try to show you what oil is. And when we get more into Nicodemus... Especially in John, maybe we'll find out more because the oil comes from the tree of mercy. And we're not talking olive trees. So, you, you have to understand that's that's how you get oil. Is you be merciful to others. That you could be judgmental. You could be angry with. You could cast them out. You could say, I'm not sharing any bread with you, Judas. You're going to betray me. And then... Here, we're going like, why did he betray him? You know, some people try to make the argument he betrayed him because he was ashamed of the fact that Jesus gave that oil, you know, allowed her to pour out that oil. They could have sold it and put all the money in the treasury, in the purse, that they were using to take care of the poor. That's that's what some people try to get you to believe. But if what we just read there, Judas was upset that Jesus was condemned. 
He thought if Jesus got arrested, he would back Jesus into a corner where Jesus would take control. Because he, he knew Jesus had these miracle powers. So he thought, well, Jesus will, you know, take up, become the king and fire all these guys and get rid of them. But his plan didn't work. It backfired. Jesus was going to be sacrificed and Jesus was okay with that. But Judas couldn't see it. But when he saw that he was condemned, he was really sad about it. That's not what he wanted. And he didn't sell him out for the money. He did take some money. Because that was too important for him. But it's probably his lasciviousness, his desires, wantonness for that money. Darkened his eyes so he couldn't see the truth. He couldn't see the real strategy of Christ. And you want to see the strategy of Christ and implement it in your own life. Judas couldn't see that. So he brought the, these coins, these 30 pieces of silver to the priests and they didn't want to take it back. And he said, I, I betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? And so he threw it to them. So now, in verse 6, we see, and the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury. Is he just rationalizing or was it not lawful? What's the deal? And why does he say treasury? And what, what word is that that they translate into treasury? Well, it's Corbin. The same word that means in the Hebrew, sacrifice, is being used here to mean treasury. And it's the same word that we see, you know, when they talk about the Corbin of the Pharisees makes the word of God to none effect. Now, when some of you are going to Baptist, Baptist churches, Methodist church, or, or, or even whatever, whatever church you went to, did anybody tell you that Corbin means sacrifice, and the Corbin, the sacrifice of the Pharisees, was making the word of God to none effect? And how was it making the word of God to none effect? It was causing the sons not to honor their father and their mother, because if you go back to when we discuss the Ten Commandments and back in Exodus, to honor thy father and thy mother meant to fatten, to take care of, provide for. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing what you should be doing for your parents. You should be doing that for your parents. But if you're not, why aren't you doing it? I guess your parents are sitting somewhere starving. No, no, no. They go to the temple. And they get their social security check. Because that's the Corbin of the modern Christian. The Corbin, the sacrifice of the modern Christian is extracted by men who exercise authority. It goes to those men who exercise authority and they rightly or they divide the bread from house to house. We don't know if it's rightly because we know there's billions of dollars with worth of social security and welfare fraud. So that's not rightly dividing anything. That's just fraud. It's not fraud that they take it. Because you did sign up for it. And they have control over the amount that you owe. But you're you're not doing it the way Christ said. You're not sharing with somebody's parents or your own, taking care of your own parents. You see, because you're not doing it the way you've abandoned the way of Christ. 
Oh, you got the way you sing in your churches, but you've abandoned the way of Christ. Can you get back to that? Well, I don't know. Do you, do you have the will to do so? Well, now, that's a catch. I'm setting you up with this. <laughs> Peter had the will to follow Jesus and not turn his back on Jesus, but he, he did turn his back on Jesus. He denied him. He had the will to go. Just like he had the will to stay up and pray and watch. But he kept falling asleep. Because you, 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 it doesn't matter if you have the will. Well, it does, but it doesn't. It's not going to make it happen. The only way it's going to happen is that you actually go the way of Christ. If you don't go the way of Christ, it's not going to happen. According to the way of Christ. So, anyway, the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful that I put them in the treasury, which is the Corbin, because it is the price of blood. It is the result of a bribe. That's why it wasn't good to put it in there. Because they bribed him with 30 pieces of silver. They probably were suggesting that, yeah, you you turn him in, we'll bring him, and he'll try, and he'll do a miracle, and everybody will see, and everybody will follow Except it wasn't happening that way. And so, I think Judas was actually doing the wrong thing, but he was doing it kind of for the right reason, because he, he wanted to see Jesus Christ as king, but he didn't understand the nature of that kingdom. And of course, he didn't understand the nature of the kingdom because he sat in darkness. And the reason he sat in darkness is because he was a little bit lascivious. A little greedy. A little vain. He wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. He was getting angry at other people. Why didn't we sell that? We could have got a lot of money for that and put it in there for the poor. Because they were taking care of the poor. They were the social welfare of those people getting baptized by John the Baptist. And they were doing it through a network of charity. And everybody was starting to change over, but that that's where you get into trouble. You're upsetting the status quo. If you say, okay, let's everybody come and join us and we'll do this and you don't have to pay your taxes anymore. That's what they were trying to bait Jesus into saying ahead of time. Now, eventually, Christians didn't have to pay the taxes. For hundreds of years, Christians didn't have to pay taxes. They took care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And, of course, that was where the Christian conflict... They didn't. They wouldn't sign up for the temples of the pagans. And they wouldn't sign up with the temple of Constantine either. Other people who had not been Christians signed up with the temple of Constantine. And they became the new Christians. And the new Constantinian church. And they were okay with having their treasuries filled up with blood money. Isn't that what he says? We can't put it in the treasury in, in the Corbanos. That's where you put the Corban in the box called the Corbanos. In Latin, that's the way you would say it. But you can't put that in there. Because I mean, even the Pharisees knew you couldn't put that in there. But the early church under Constantine... They were given millions and millions of dollars in silver and land and buildings and all this stuff. They were just given all that. How did Constantine have the those funds to give? Why well, he had taken away from others. And he killed them in order to do it. 
took it away from, you know, his partner and killed all his, his whole partner's family. So there was, they were, they couldn't inherit anything. And then, uh, he just took it all. And that made him wealthy enough that he could give these big gifts to the church. But that very first church of Constantine was taking blood money. They was taking blood money. I mean, that's what we see here. That Even the Pharisees knew you couldn't do that. Church of Constantine didn't know you couldn't do that. They were okay with that. Of course, the Church of Constantine was populated with unrepentant pagans. It wasn't... The, 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 no, the real Christians were still around. And they weren't getting persecuted like they were before because theoretically all Christians were okay now. But the only church that was legalized by Constantine was the false church of Constantine. who said it's okay to take blood money to, and, and to feed the poor with blood money. And here we see the Pharisees say, no, you can't do that. You can't, you can't feed them with blood money. It goes on in verse 7, and, and they took counsel and bought with them, with the silver... See, now, that's interesting. I'm going to point that out. I can point it out in a lot of other places. They call the silver coins them. They're not talking about a, a bunch of guys. They're just talking about the silver coins, but they call it them in this translation. Now, there's a, a particular word there. They could have said with those coins, but they said with them, they bought the potter's field. And the potter's field was a field to bury strangers. And, you know, people who had no family and didn't have any, you know, they weren't a part of anything, so you could bury them there. And in verse 8, he goes on to say, Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. And it says then, of course, unto this day meant unto when Matthew was writing this. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken of in Jeremy, says Jeremy, it's Jeremiah, the prophet, saying that they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. So that they bought this this field with those 30 pieces of silver. But what's spoken of in Jeremiah? Now this is interesting. And, and I don't know if either one is right, but there's several different theories about which verse in Jeremiah Matthew is talking about. Because he didn't say what verse here. But if we go and read Jeremiah, I mean there's Jeremiah 32... 7 and 9, 7 through 9, and Jeremiah 18, 2 through 4. Well, in 18 he says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on his wheel. So we're talking about an actual potter. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. 
Now that's Jeremiah 18.24 and some people say that's the verse that they're talking about. Well, I can also tell you there's a lot of people that say that that verse is about reincarnation. That's what they say. I'm not telling you one way or the other. You know, the potter, he makes something out of clay and it doesn't work out and so he makes it again out of clay. And so this is the potter's field. You know, that the, the potter's way of taking clay and remolding it and trying again because it didn't work out the first time. And, and there's lots of people who think that this is... And most of the Jews at the time of Jesus Christ believed in reincarnation in some form or another. And, and there's all kinds of debate about that. But the reality is, is that it's pretty evident that a lot of... I mean, the writings show... I mean, right there in the biblical text... People are saying, well, who is Jesus? And they're saying they think it's John the Baptist come back. Well, the people who knew, who saw John the Baptist and Jesus together knew that Jesus was not the reincarnation of John the Baptist. But they're actually thinking the spirit, I mean, this is where you can take reincarnation, that the spirit of somebody who just died can, they call it in, 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 you know, these areas that they call it walk-ins, where the spirit of somebody who died recently can just walk into somebody who's already grown and that person wants to leave. <laughs> you know, their spirit concedes, I don't want to be alive anymore. But and, and you see this sometimes, what people say is this. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying this is what the story is with some people. That... Uh, they see somebody goes through a traumatic experience, and, and which is absolutely reasonable. He comes out of it, and he's like a completely different person. They says you've completely changed. It's like you're somebody else. And people, some people will tell you that that's walk-ins. That's spirit from somebody who just died, and they came in. And some people thought that's what Jesus was. That it was John the Baptist was now inhabiting Jesus, and... And this is why he could do all these things, because he just came from this spiritual realm into Jesus. Now, now that's that to me is not what happened <laughs> at all. But I'm just saying that. But they get these ideas by interpreting verses like that. But like I said, there's other verses that they say are also this Jeremiah verse. And that's in Jeremiah 32, verses 7 through 9. It's actually a little bit more than 7 through 9, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. But uh, they talk about, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamiel mine uncle's son came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord and said unto me, Buy my field. I pray thee that in the Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son. Now, like I say, I can read a lot farther. He goes on and, and was in this Anathoth. And, and we can actually look at the word Anathoth because there's an actual meaning to that word that might help us understand. Because I'm not going to go all the way down the different levels of it. And they weighed out the money. 
even 17 shekels of silver. Now, they're talking 17. The other one was 30. doesn't match up perfectly. But some scholars say this is the verse in Jeremy or Jeremiah that that Matthew is talking about. Others say it's the Jeremiah 18. Both in some sort of way actually have to do with similar things in a metaphoric way. But, you know, one is talking about redemption and fixing something that went wrong and the other one is talking about clay and fixing something that went wrong and redoing it. And both of them are talking about, you know, where this field is now belongs to this, it's been bought and so now this field is be, can be used for this other purpose. But which one, I, I can't tell you. I'm not supposed to tell you. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you. But I'm just saying, there's a lot of ambiguity that people just don't get. They don't know. They don't understand what's going on. But we see this this reference to Jeremiah the prophet. And those are the two verses. And there may be other verses that would fit better, but I haven't found which ones that people are talking about there. But once you know what Jeremiah is talking about and all the prophets are talking about, they're all talking about the same thing. But you can see how people can create all kinds of doctrines. You know, and of course, if you mention reincarnation to many, many Christians today, that, oh, no, 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 you only sleep when you're in the grave. And, and you're not aware of anything around you because you're asleep. Yet, when we read in the Bible, many of the people get their revelation while they sleep in dreams. You know, angels come and appear to them while they're asleep and tell them stuff that they're going to need to attend to when they come awake. So it's not an oblivion. People maybe for you it's oblivion. But in the Bible we see over and over again that when they're asleep, they're interacting with angels, they're interacting with visions, they're getting messages, they're coming to conclusions, and they wake up and they act upon those. So sleep is, you know. So the people who argue that, oh no, you're just asleep. You have no control. You don't understand. You don't hear anything. You know. Well, evidently they don't know how other people sleep. Maybe they're just in a stupor when they're asleep. But this again is how people create doctrines. You know, I don't know what's going to happen when you die. I I can talk about it around the campfire because we and I can show you where. This doctrine doesn't really fit because he says, this, what, what do we do with this statement over here? Uh, you know, like he says, uh, pay your taxes, obey the government. So, yeah, we should all be on welfare. <laughs> well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't say don't pay taxes. I, I didn't say if you, if you owe Caesar, I say pay Caesar. I, I don't know what you owe Caesar. You have to figure that out. But you have to be careful that you be friends with the unrighteous man, and you be agreeable with it. Better, better to overpay Caesar than to cheat him, because you cheat Caesar, you cheat all the people in the unrighteous famine. You can't find your way to the kingdom of God by cheating all the people in the unrighteous famine. You're supposed to be praying for the people in the unrighteous famine. Remember, in the beginning of John, it tells you that God so loved the world. What word did he use there? Constitutional order and system of government. 
that he gave his only begotten son that they might be saved. So, and you want to cheat them? <laughs> Don't cheat them. You know, be friends with it so that you'll be worthy of more righteous habitation. Better off to overpay the government than to cheat it. Because when you cheat the government, you cheat your neighbor. Because your neighbor is dependent upon the government. And, you know, if you're cheating, I don't know. Like I say, I don't know what you owe. But be careful of gurus. We have a whole page on gurus that say, oh, all you have to do is this and this and this and you don't have to pay anything. Well, you know, you better take a really close and honest look at that. Because if you, if that guy's wrong, you're going to pay the price. And you need to count the cost, which means you need to understand what's really going on. So, and gave them the potter's field, and the Lord appointed me. Okay, now verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest it. Thou sayest. So, but now remember how many times Jesus heard what Simon the jar maker was thinking. He knew what other people were thinking. He knew what other people were going to do. He he saw this. Did he know that Pontius Pilate had already had a conversation with somebody and thought Pontius, Pontius Pilate thought Jesus was the rightful king? He's certainly going to testify to that. Over and over again. He's going to defend Jesus. He's going to find him as an innocent man. He's not going to condemn him. He's going to go way out of his way to try to find a way that he can get the Pharisees to stop persecuting Jesus. Because he doesn't doesn't want Jesus persecuted. But he also doesn't want to riot. I've heard scholars, just recently I read several scholars that were saying that they don't even think there was a Barabbas. They think that the whole story is fictional. These are actually guys who are writing commentaries. They think the whole story of Jesus and Barabbas and Pontius Pilate was fictional. Way back when I was a little kid, there were people out there that said that there was no Pontius Pilate. And like I said this morning, they uncovered a step and they were flipping it over. They were taking it up and they were re-excavating the ground. They were kind of remodeling the landscape. And they turned this limestone, I think it was the limestone step, over. And underneath was the name of Pontius Pilate carved in the stone. You can probably Google it and find out what that looks like. And they said, well, that's, that's written in stone. Even the stones are crying out that Pontius Pilate was real. So, But they're saying that, oh, you know... That he, he had the armies of Rome at his beck and call. He wouldn't have been worried about what a few Jews were complaining about. He wouldn't be releasing known criminals and all this kind of stuff. Well, they don't know what they're talking about. Because Pontius Pilate was treading on thin ice. He was real popular with Tiberius at one time. Extremely popular. His wife was even more popular. We supposedly don't even know what his wife's name is. She's often called uh, Procula. And it's spelled a couple different ways, whether it's in Latin or Greek. But she was called. But later on, she'd be called Claudius Procula. 
And she's a saint. And Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, uh, uh, the Eastern Catholic Orthodox, um, Coptic Church, uh, Church of Ethiopia. I'm just trying to remember. I have to kind of read it in my head. I, I can't, I think I have it on the page there. But, uh, yeah, she was considered a saint. She started churches. She was, Pontius Pilate is considered a saint by some. And he started churches. Because Pontius Pilate thought Jesus was right on. He thought he had a good idea. And he wasn't the only Roman that thought this. Many of the Roman centurions thought it. Putin, Paul's mother after she was wid- widowed. And he was a Roman. They had a son. And that son was also Putin. And he married Gladys. So oh, there, I, I got it right. But And Gladys became known as Claudia. Which is interesting that Gladys became known as Claudia and Pontius Pilate's wife became known as Claudia as well. And yet, I have no reason to believe that they're related in any way, shape, or form. But uh, Claudia was just somewhat of a... We know why Gladys was named Claudia. I, I, right at this moment, I can't tell you why uh, Procula was named Claudia Procula. It could have been that her name was Claudia all along, and that would make a great deal more sense. Because if she was Tiberius's daughter, Tiberius might name his daughter, his, or not Tiberius, but Tiberius's a son might name their child Claudia. Although it doesn't make a great deal of sense. Because the idea of uh, Claudius becoming the emperor was absolutely remote when Tiberius was emperor. The one who was likely and did come after Tiberius was Caligula, which will play in this, and a story I'll add in this about Caligula and Pontius Pilate, which is in other documentation. Because... It was something strange. People said it was the robe that Pontius Pilate was wearing. And there's a lot of talk in here about robes. And I think it's very mixed up. And and I can't prove what I think is actually going on. But I'll, I'll share it with you as we go through this. Because this robe... The, people's interpretation doesn't fit the narrative. We have to get rid of what it says in one gospel in order for this narrative to fit. Or vice versa or whatever. And I, I think because of that, they've all got it wrong. But I do, don't think that the robe that was on Jesus Christ ended up on Pontius Pilate and that's why he got away with what he got away with every time Caligula tried to sit in the ju- judgment seat. Because that's what some people intimate. That's the story surrounding when he was brought before Caligula to be tried. And Caligula, like I said, is crazy guy. You don't want to be tried by Caligula. Unless you have the garment of Christ on. And of course, that's this is where the story gets convoluted. Is that they say, because Pontius Pilate, this is what some people will say, because of the cloak of Jesus on Pontius Pilate, every time Caligula tried to condemn him to be executed, he couldn't do it. 
He was afraid to do it. Now we'll explain that more later. Uh, and what, what I think was actually going on. And I don't think it was actually a hand-woven garment. And I can show you lots of reasons. This is the thing. is If you just read these isolated uh, accounts and you don't take the other ones in account, you, you assume you're, you're going to have to throw out Mark or going to throw out Luke or going to throw out John. Somebody got it drastically wrong. So, and now, when in talking about the robe that was put on Jesus, you know, that... You know, it's called all kinds of things. Splendid, you know, uh, a gorgeous robe. They put a gorgeous robe on Jesus. Why did Herod put a gorgeous robe on Jesus? Why were the Roman centurions casting lots for pieces of this robe? They tore it up in pieces. This is very detailed. Where they tore it up in pieces and they were... But before that, they were casting lots so that one of them would get the whole robe. But supposedly they divided it up because they couldn't settle the dispute. Why tear up Jesus' blood-stained robes and then fight over getting a piece of them? How is that valuable to the soldiers? Why did they want that? Is there something more that we're missing here? Well, that's why you want to get all the pieces of the puzzle because you get all the pieces of the puzzle and they fit together. So anyway, back to the the Corbin was this treasury. They bought a field with the money and, and the potter's field is meant to be used to bury people that have no family. Uh, that have no, uh, you know, they have no, it's, it's, we still call it that, the potter's field where you put people who don't, they can't buy a gravesite, but you got to put them somewhere so they have a potter's field and they all bury them all there. Because they have no place to lay their body. Of course, there's a significance to that because Christ had no place. You know, the, the foxes have their dens, remember that? But the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Doesn't even have a place to be buried. But Jesus had a place to be buried, but it wasn't his. He had to borrow the grave of somebody else and be buried in that family's unused grave. What family was that? (laughs) Oh, it gets stranger and stranger. But anyway, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou a king? And Jesus said, Thou sayest it. Because Jesus knew that he was already talking to his wife and he was already deciding these things. And he already thought, he says, you've, you've, already, you've already said it. The mere fact that Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate is suggesting that he's at least got a claim to the throne. But anyway, we'll go on. And when he was accused of the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. He wouldn't say anything to them. He wouldn't talk to them. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word. He wouldn't say anything. Insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. And of course, this is an actual tactic in court. That if you begin to testify, this happened to a guy, a prominent case, 
where a guy said he, he was going to take the fifth and not testify anything, but before he did that, he made a statement. He wanted to put a statement on the record. Well, they said, once you've made the statement on the record, you can't take the fifth. You took the statement under oath, and then now you're saying you're taking the fifth. Well, you can't do both. That was the argument. You can say whether that's fair or not. But that's why they don't put people who are charged on the witness stand, because once you're on the witness stand, you have to answer the questions. Or you could be held in contempt of court. But if you don't understand how courts work, but many of the courts today work just like these courts back then. So you have to understand the courts today in order to understand the courts back then. Now, there are some differences. And again, that is jurisdictional. Because a court under Pilate is going to be different than the court in the Sanhedrin. Or the people's court down there where there were ten families in a congregation. That congregation should settle issues and disputes. Like if you had a minister who had a dispute with the other congregants over something and he he tried to exercise authority and tried to say, oh, you can't do this and can't do that. you got to bring it before all the other congregation because our ministers aren't popes. And, and you got to let them decide that. And again, like I said this morning, if you want to kick people out of your congregation, all you have to do is turn up the Holy Spirit. It drives those who love to sit in darkness away. But turning up the Holy Spirit for them is turning up the Holy Spirit for you. It's lighting your heart. We're going to see your heart. And judgment and anger and resentment and patience, that all comes out of your heart. Now, what you don't want is more of that getting into your heart. And there are things you could do to prevent more of those things from coming into your heart. And one of the things that you could do is forgive. That's how you that's how you heal trauma is that you forgive. So all these things are being said against him and he's not saying a thing. Never a word. Amazing. But now they, they kind of shift gears here in verse fifteen. Now at the feast of the governor. So this is the feast of the governor, it says. Or seems to say. You know, when you read the Greek it it's not really clear. I mean, is this the feast of the you know, is this like Passover? Is this like uh, unleavened bread? I mean, like, is this like one of their feasts? But it says feast at the feast. The governor doesn't say of the governor. It says now at the feast, the governor. So it is the Hebrew feast. It's not the governor's feast. It's not his birthday or something. I've seen guys trying to argue that that's this is some kind of thing that the. You know, but it is something that is done regularly to gain popularity. Pliny did it. Uh, Pliny the Younger did it. Other judges done it. Uh, the Vestal Virgins did it. And uh, it, it made governments popular when they commuted sentences. Uh, and a lot of times animosity seemed to fade away because they set certain captives free. But it says, Now at the feast, the governor was want to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. In other words, he wanted to give them the choice to release a prisoner of their choice. Now, if there wasn't a prisoner of choice, he could he could just guess which one is the best and release it on his own cognizance. And Matthew says that there was this notable prisoner 
called Barabbas. And he was being held. He doesn't say much about his crime. He says, therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto him, Will ye that I release unto you? You know, whom will you, whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ. He didn't say Barabbas called Christ. He says Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ. Now, if you actually look at the Greek, he could be suggesting that either Barabbas called Christ or Jesus called Christ. Which one do you want me to release? Or he could be just referring to Jesus. It has to do not only with the way in which the words are written, but the order in which they appear in the original text. But Barabbas means son of the father. If, if you if you put two R's in Barabbas, it would be the son of the rabbi. But it appears to be the son of the father. And of course, Jesus is the son of man who is the son of the father who art in heaven. And also is called the son of God. Barabbas is actually to some degree if the father, I mean nobody's called the son of the father, everybody's got a father. But the the name Barabbas is a little bit of a play on son of the father. And we see this with other uh, wannabe messiahs that showed up around this period of time. Some of them actually a hundred years before, some of them Right about this time, there were a lot of people. Most of them couldn't get much following. Some of them got following and ended up getting slaughtered with all their men. They were surrounded in, in the hills, uh, the north of Jerusalem, north, kind of, uh, more towards the Jordan or Syrian border, out in the bonies in this, like, wash area. They were in there and the Romans were at one side. They were at both sides blocking so they couldn't escape. And they just kind of waited them out. And eventually, then they got weak. They went in there and they just slaughtered him. And they just left his body laying there. But there were all kinds of messiahs that were getting people slaughtered. Just like there's all kinds of gurus today that say, Oh, all you have to do is this. All you have to do is that. And you go ask them, So where's your... Are you doing a, rightly dividing bread from house to house in your scheme? No, no. You just fill out this paperwork and you're free. Whoa, whoa, wait, that don't sound like Christ. Oh no, this is what Christ said to do. And they'll take one verse. You know, and, and recently somebody was taking 520, Matthew 525. And, and there was another Matthew one that they were using, and I, I'm not recalling it right now. And, and those verses have a place. But if you, you take them too far, they will take you too far. You're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And it's righteous that you take care of your neighbor. That you care about your neighbor. That you be the good Samaritan. That you even care about your enemy. That's righteous. That you don't covet your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. That's righteous. If you're doing that, that's not righteous. That's actually shedding innocent blood. And we'll show you how that works. (laughs) As we keep going. So anyway, but this is a notable prisoner. Barabbas wasn't just, you know, I mean, he was accused in in another verse, he's accused of murder in another chapter. He's accused of being a murderer. And 
uh, an insurrectionist or seditionist, like I say, the same word insurrectionist and seditionist are the same word in the Greek. And uh, so he was somehow or other trying to overthrow somebody. And, you know, like one of these other commentaries said that, you know, that this guy, the idea that they were going to release somebody who had attacked the Roman Empire doesn't say anywhere that he attacked the Roman Empire. It actually says that his sedition was against the city. It wasn't against the empire. Yeah, he'd, he'd probably be dead up that gully if it was against the empire. Because yeah, they didn't mess around. But you'd have to actually be attacking them. You may have had problem with corruption in the city. And we know there was corruption in the city. Jesus said there was. That's why he was firing the money changers. Barabbas wasn't firing the money changers. He wasn't hailed as king by most people. He's not like Jesus. So he didn't go in and fire the money changers. He's just going to have rebellion and sedition and overthrow. According to some, he had threatened the life of many of the heads of the government in Judea around Jerusalem, which would be at that time were the high priests. You know, like Ananias' sons and Caiaphas and that sort of thing. But somehow or other, he was usurping things in the city. That's what he was doing. He wasn't going against the Roman Empire. He probably wasn't a prisoner of Rome. But uh, if he was doing some kind of sedition in order to eventually maneuver himself into a place where he could take over as the king in Jerusalem, then Rome's going to be brought in to... Because they can't put him to death. The Pharisees wouldn't be able to put him to death because it's a question again of the king. If it, For the murder, if it was out and out murder, he may have just, when they say murder, he could be responsible for somebody's death. As a matter of fact, the sedition that he might be accused of is the riot that took place under Pontius Pilate, which Jesus mentions, because Pontius Pilate had put down that riot with soldiers. What he'd done is, soldiers dressed up like civilians, you know, and other so-called insurrections, that seems to have also taken place recently, where people in the government dressed up like protesters and went in and instigated a riot. That's not what Pilate was doing. He was a lot more moral than many of the leaders we have today. He was a lot more just man, but he knew that somebody might be instigating a riot. Riots are bad for Roman business, and if it's bad for Roman business, it's going to get you into trouble with Tiberius. So in order to not let the riot get out of hand, he dressed up Roman soldiers like civilians and put them down in the crowd. And when they started getting out of hand, he gave a signal, and they immediately pulled out clubs and started hitting the inhabitants and putting down the riot. You know, stop, stop, you know. I mean, they're knocking people around. And it appears that somebody died because Jesus talks about blood. In describing it. Now, the, the, to me, the most interesting thing when I explored this particular event is why people were rioting. What, what Pontius Pilate had done, he started a civilian work project where they take limestones. We have a picture. Uh, it's in a number of places on the website. You can find it on the page on Barnabas. Or, not Barnabas, Barabbas. 
uh, the page on Barabbas. And they, there's a stone there with a round hole cut in it and a flange cut on one end and an insert place where you could stick another flange on the other. And what they did is they take these square blocks, which are probably like 36 by 36, maybe 32 by 32, some Roman measurement, and they stick them together. They they just fit them together. They might even put a little bit of mortar in there to make them fit a little tighter. But they fit them together. And they keep doing that. And they'll do it for several miles. They make all these stones and just keep bringing them in with carts and stuff and then setting them up. And, you know, they'll they'll chop up the roadway and put big rocks and then little rocks so that they have a very stable foundation. And they'll put them for miles. And they'll bring water from one place all the way to the middle of the city. And they'll fill up some fountain and anybody can go there and fill up their water Bosses. And it's it's a it's a civil project of bringing water in. You know that's their main line for bringing water into the city. And he built that. And according to some people's perception, if you wanted to build that, and you started running out of money, you would put out like a bond, where everybody was going to get a share, or or this, or they donate money, or whatever. And they would build it as a separate work project. He went and took money out of where? The Corbin. Out of the treasury. The same treasury that the priests didn't want to put that $30 of silver into. Because it was blood money. Now it wasn't. He didn't want to take blood money out. But he wanted to take money out of that system. Because he's, he's thinking and it's rational thinking. That you know this water is going to benefit everybody. And there's enough money in there that we can pay for the rest of this with that. It's not going to hurt anybody. And we got more money coming in because everybody who signed up has to put in a share of their, in, you know, what they produce every year. And so they're going to get more money flowing in. But they wanted to get the project finished. So he took that money out and they were going to riot because he was pilfering their Social Security fund because that's what Corbin is. It's your Social Security fund. Jesus was against the idea of putting it in a treasury and mounding it up. His idea was, of course, the way Moses was, is that you create, you don't put it in a golden calf or in a treasury or something, that you create a network that is so tightly bound that if you have problems, everybody's going to know about it and everybody's going to share accordingly. And if the minister says, we need some more for this guy. He's going to ask for it and the people are going to give it. And uh, so that that creates the social bonds of a strong society. And that's the way they should have done it. Pontius Pilate thought, well, it's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't grafting corruption. He was putting the money into something that's going to benefit the people. But he should have done it another way. And a lot of people were right to complain about that. But they weren't right to riot about that. To riot in the day, daytime. But he also wasn't right in setting them up with, you know, big strong centurions dressed like civilians in there and then start beating them. And see, that wasn't the only incident. There were other incidences that uh, he got into trouble with. He, he was putting an ensign, no, shields. It was when they put, uh, it, there was a gift of some shields that were put in the houses 
I think it was the house of Herod uh, on display and there was like a plaque there that said who donated the shields and there was no graven images on this that was a you could get in he he had already gotten in trouble with that kind of thing and conceded but this he put the shields up and some people complained and he says well there's no graven images it's just the name of the guy who donated it's not in your holy of holies it's over here in these other quarters and so he he denied their petition. Well, they wrote it to Tiberius. They wrote the petition to Tiberius. Tiberius gets it and reverses Pontius Pilate. Strike two. <laughs> you see, so Pilate was already getting on thin ice and he didn't want any more riots. Because riots are bad for business. Yeah, he could put them down with the army. Yeah, he could do that. But that's bad for business. And if you... If you hurt the business of the Romans who are running the harbors, running the roads, running the marketplace and collecting money, if you hurt their business, they're going to write Tiberius. And you're going to get replaced. No matter how much he likes your wife. So, yeah. So, if you know all that stuff, you won't say these stupid things that these other commentaries are saying. Now, you can just... You know, wipe them out with the army. Yeah, well, every time you get that army marching, it's going to cost you money. You know, it's not cheap. And uh, it could cost you a great deal of popularity. And they know, don't do that. I mean, Americans don't get that anymore. And uh, you're going to make, if you go to two ruthless of war, you're just going to make more and more enemies. And... uh, Moses had checks and balances against that, but nobody's paying attention. They don't even know what the checks and balances of Moses to keep people from unnecessary wars. And uh, and I, I can we could go into that, but we'll never get through this. So anyway, this notable prisoner he wants to know which one you want to release, and it says in here a little line, verse eighteen. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Meaning Jesus. They were envious of Jesus. But they were also afraid of Barabbas. Because Barabbas was a violent guy. And he supposedly he had sworn the death of a lot of the people, a lot of the Pharisees. He was probably a zealot. It's hard to tell for sure. I mean, you can guess some of these things. It's an educated guess. But anyway, in verse 19 we see... When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife, meaning Pilate's wife, Procula, sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day, this day, in a dream because of him. Now there's evidence to believe that Procula was actually donating to Jesus and listening to his ministry. And she was a, a member of other, you know, Joanna and, and others who were supporting Jesus. That she knew these people. And that she knew what Jesus was teaching. And, and there's reason to believe this because of the stories that came afterwards. Because we know more about her afterwards than we know before. But it's not in the biblical text. We don't, don't even see her name in the biblical text. Just that she is Pontius Pilate's wife. 
But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that when they say multitude, this isn't this isn't a vote of everybody in Judea. It's it's the larger group that is with them. Elders, scribes, priests, all the people. That they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? Get, you know, set them free. And they said, Barabbas. Pilate was struck by this. And you can kind of tell it if you read this in the Greek. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? In, in essence, he's saying, which is the Christ? They all say unto him, this crowd, let him be crucified. Now, this isn't the multitude of Judea. This isn't the multitude of Jerusalem. This is the crowd that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes had gotten together. And they're the ones that say, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? I mean, just the way he says why in the Greek, this is, he doesn't get it. Why are you doing this? You have every reason to keep Barabbas in jail. He's a murderer. Not only an insurrectionist or a seditionist, he is actually a murderer. He actually did real violence in his insurrection. He didn't just walk around and look at the sights. He should be arrested. He should be kept in jail. He was a violent individual. And and Pontius Pilate can't get it. Now, wait a minute. You were just envious of Jesus, right? Why are you doing this? You're you're going to endanger yourself because Barabbas isn't giving up. What evil hath he done? Why are you doing this to Jesus? He hadn't done any evil. But they cried cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw he could not prevail, nothing. Now, we only get a few little, like this all took place in a few minutes. It sounds like he said could prevail nothing, that he, this might have gone on for a while. Saying, you know what, I don't find anything wrong, I don't see that, or like, why are you doing this? And, and they just kept hammering the issue. And he saw that he could prevail nothing, no matter what he did, no matter what he said. But that rather a tumult was made. That they were getting more and more worked up. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude. Now there's descriptions of this where he makes a much bigger deal about it. Saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. This just person. He actually uses a word that they're translating into person there. Which is is not the common word that is translated in person. When he says this just man, so they say just person, but actually the word there is up in the original. What he's actually saying is this righteous man. Because the word that we see there is the word for righteousness. You know, 41 times it's translated righteousness. But they're saying just man. And I... I you know, and I look at this one concordance. It doesn't have all the Greek words, but it has the ones that they they number in here. But if you actually go to the actual Greek text, and there's more than one Greek text, 
just heads up to everybody. There's more than one Greek text that they use to even, you know, they talk about the Textus Receptus. That's not just one text. They look at several texts and they use that because they, they're not 100% in agreement. They're pretty close. But occasionally they'll put in a single word or they'll, they'll leave out a word. Uh, now, other sources, they'll leave out whole verses. But uh, that's not usually the case with the Textus Receptus. But uh, they will alter words, and uh, because they're, and then they they translate some directly, and some they don't. So anyway, that that's uh, Dikaios, and uh, it means this man who observes righteousness. And, and it even means divine laws. It doesn't mean legal systems. It means divine laws. And uh, they may also abide by legal systems, but it's uh, basically the, they're almost saying the law of nature in the Greek. In, in the Latin, they would say, you know, uh, juice naturale for natural law. But they don't have that same phrase over into the Greek. Yeah, the Greeks only have really one word for law, nomos. And so, uh, they, well, the Romans have, uh, uh, juris and lex legis. And lex legis is a legal system and juris is actually what is just right and fair. And one is natural law and the other one is the systems that men make for themselves. And understanding that, will help you, but also understanding that Greek doesn't have that distinction, then you have to look at other things in the sentence. And so he says, I'm innocent of this innocent, uh, this this just man, this righteous man's blood. And he says, see you to it. He's saying, you guys, you can do this. I'm not going to crucify this guy. So the Romans didn't crucify Jesus. A lot of people, you know, because they say soldiers and because there were Roman soldiers around, they think that the Romans were crucifying Jesus. No, the Romans were not. They they found Jesus innocent. But because he gave them this choice, he couldn't take it back. He thought they would want Jesus released and save Barabbas. That they just envied Jesus because he was so popular. But what he miscalculated, because he wasn't devious enough, maybe... I'm just, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. The reason Jesus Christ is being crucified, one is because he was showing that they didn't really know Moses. He was attacking the delusion that they were actually following Moses. And, you know, if I were to attack a delusion of the modern church who thinks that they're born again while they're actually workers of iniquity, they continue to sit in darkness. They do the opposite of what Christ said. They covet one another's goods through the men who exercise authority. They even curse their children with their covetous practices. If I point that out, that if you're doing that, you're not a Christian. You're not born again, and you're not following Christ, and you're under a strong delusion, all of which we're warned about in the Bible. If I point that out, they're going to want to crucify me. But that's okay. I'm an old man. <laughs> now, I, I don't really think that's okay. I would rather not be crucified. Uh, but uh, the the fact is, is I, I can't help but tell you the truth. After all that I've spent, 
following this way and finding out what the way is. I mean, I remember when I was a little tiny kid, I wanted to know what the truth was. And now when I know it, I have to share it with you. Yeah, I'm long-winded and take a long time. So, you know, this is a trick. I talked to I talked to somebody about this just recently. I, I was trying to find a certain part in, in a recording, and I was doing it on my phone. And at the particular software playing the recording, I, I couldn't make it jump, you know, ahead, you know, or, or slide the bar across so that I could move it because I, I knew it was near the end. And I didn't want to sit there for two hours listening to it. So while I was writing, I, I was in front of a laptop. I had a tablet with me. But I do a lot of my research on the phone or on the tablet, and I make notes, and then I come back in here and write. If I sit in here all the time for 18 hours straight, I suffer for it. <laughs> I would do a lot less suffering if you guys would actually sit down in the tens, hundreds, of thousands and do the things that I'm talking about. and Stop bickering amongst yourselves and, and stop wandering off into the wilderness and, uh, you know, pay attention to what Christ actually said. That would be really good. Until then, I just will pray for you and fast and and uh, watch and wait for the day that everybody starts to do it. And uh, God's sending you some motivation to do it because things are going to get worse. And when you ask, why would God allow this? Because you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing. <laughs> and so, here comes some plagues. So anyway, uh, what I, I notice is that I... I I could put it at one and a half speed. Evidently, there's some softwares that you can put it at, at double speed. But I just put it at one and a half speed. I talk really fast. <laughs> but it, it was it was good, you know. Uh, my wife heard it playing because I didn't put an earphone in, but uh, she heard it playing. She said, I sounded like Ben Shapiro. And she said, I don't like Ben Shapiro. <laughs> he, he talks too fast. And so... But she she informed me that she did like me, so that was okay. <laughs> but I said I was just trying to get to the end quick, and I, I thought it had an interesting effect. And so if you don't think you have enough time to listen to me at regular speed, increase the speed, save time. But, you know, listening and then praying is a good thing. And then after you pray, listen for what God has to say. I don't know how fast he's going to talk to you. But he's talking to you right now. You just have to start learning to listen. So anyway, they're saying, let him be crucified, this righteous man. And they even yell out in verse 25 that his blood be on us and on our children. They're cursing their children with this. And, you know, now a lot of people say, oh, so the Jews killed Jesus and somehow we're supposed to, the blood of Jesus is on the Jews and all that stuff. You're going to be missing the whole thing if you go down that road. You're not going to get what they're going to be talking about. And I'll show you how you're not going to get what they're talking about. If you, if you don't, if you, if you don't really think careful about what you're doing. This whole idea of innocent blood. If you go to Deuteronomy 19.10. That innocent blood be not shed in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For an inheritance. And so blood be upon thee. If you shed innocent blood in your land. You know like abortion is shedding innocent blood. But that's not the only way you can shed innocent blood. Because we see in Psalms 106.38. 
and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with their blood. Now, you can picture, you know, there's Moloch there, and and you're putting babies in the arms of Moloch, and they're burning them, and they're burning up children. And of course, now that's crazy. That's probably been done. But you don't have to get that crazy to do what they just said. And if you go read in Proverbs one ten, you can actually take Proverbs all the way back to the beginning, but we'll just start in verse 10 of Proverbs. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive. Devour them alive as the grave. Swallow them up alive as if they were going to the grave. You know, let the dead bury the dead, kind of metaphorically speaking. Although that metaphor sometimes turns into reality. And whole... Swallow them up whole as those that go down into the pit. See, if you fall into the pit, you're completely swallowed up by the pit and the darkness of the pit. And you'll be in darkness then. We shall find all precious substance. We're going to get a lot of gain. You know, we shall fill our houses with spoil. You know, all kinds of benefits. Cast thy lot amongst us. Let us all have one purse. Go read our article on first. I link to it on that page somewhere. What he's talking about is socialism. That's where you all have one purse. And I can stick my hand in your purse and take out what I want, and you can stick your hand in my purse and you can take out what you want. Of course, you know, you have to let guys do exercise authority to do that, but you all have one purse. My son, walk not thou in the way of them. Refrain thy foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, to make haste to shed blood. Uh, how, how are they shedding blood? Socialism doesn't shed blood. Well, actually, eventually, socialism leads to communism, and communism sheds blood by the millions. But it starts with little bite, little nibble nibble where you eat the sugary house of your neighbor because it's sweet to you to bite your neighbor and get those benefits at the expense of your neighbor. That's biting your neighbor. Proverbs 6.16 These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. So there's six things. Yea, seven are an abomination. So there's six things, but altogether there's seven abominations. A proud look. Too proud to admit that you're exercising authority one over the other to get benefits at the expense of your neighbor. I mean, it is so clear. If you want to send your kids to public school, you're coveting your neighbor's goods because you're not going to pay all the cost of that public school. You're going to send men to your neighbor's house to force them to contribute to your public school. That's coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. Jesus said it was not to be that way with you. But are you too proud to admit that? You, you think, well, I'm born again. I can, I can covet my neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. You're too proud to see your delusion. And you say that you believe 
But that's a lying tongue, which is another thing he hates. You don't tell the truth. You, you don't want to see. I mean, it's right there in the text. It's not a metaphor. You're not to be like those governments. They have men who call themselves benefactors, but they only give you benefits that they took away from your neighbor because by the nature of that practice, you are exercising covetousness. If you say you're not, that's a lying tongue. And what happens is it your hands that shed the innocent blood. You know, when you take the benefit and they have to, you know, add another classroom, you're shedding the blood of your neighbor. Verse 18, he goes on to say, and, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Where you imagine that coveting your neighbor's goods is not wicked? That's a wicked imagination. You've devised this system. It was wrong from the beginning. But you've done it now for a hundred years and you, your conscience is seared. But God's not going to hear you. You can sing your songs and say your prayers but you're still forcing your neighbor to contribute to what you want for free you're taking from your neighbor's house the things that are your neighbor's and forcing you're not you're not operating by faith hope and charity you're operating by force and so that's why you have feet that be swift in running to mischief because you, you started out with schools were just partially supported by taxes. Now all supported by taxes. And everything else is supported by taxes. You you want a road, you don't get together and build it yourself. And people say, well, we couldn't do that. Well, you used to. I mean, that's how America got great. Because they used to do all this stuff through charity. Go read our article on Davy Crockett. Yeah, Davy Crockett, when he was a congressman. And he wouldn't force people to contribute to the welfare of people who suffered a terrible fire and loss. Because people have to do it by charity. If they don't, you'll degenerate the whole of society. One person at a time. You'll break the bonds of society. And you'll end up with the bands of politics which will return you to the bondage of Egypt. We start out reading Deuteronomy 17. Go, uh, 19. Go read Deuteronomy 17. So, you devise this, this wicked in your imagination, and a false witness thou speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord amongst brethren, because you covet one another's goods. You're not, you're not being Christians. Galatians even goes on farther to say this. It's the same basic thing. Galatians five fourteen. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But, but, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Your inflation today is directly the result of the fact that you've been biting one another for almost a hundred years. 
in a system of social welfare where you all have one purse and the government just keeps taking more and more and more to give you more and more benefits and you weren't taking them fast enough so now they're giving those benefits to Ukrainians and they're giving them to uh, Israelis and I mean like I don't care if you want to support Israel you can do that you you could you should do that through private associations. You shouldn't tax everybody in the country to do it. And if you think it's okay to force your neighbor to contribute to what you think ought to be contributed to, then you don't believe in liberty. You don't believe in freedom. If you don't believe in liberty and freedom, you're not going to have liberty and freedom. If you're going to covet your neighbor's goods, your neighbor can covet your goods. Because you judge it's okay. They can judge it okay. And you've got an entire nation of extremely selfish people. And they're going to take and take and take and take and take. And you created a system contrary to the ways of Moses, contrary to the ways of Christ. And now it's time that you learn to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Find out what they were actually doing and try that instead so anyway we see that then released he Barabbas then he said released he Barabbas unto them and when he had scourged Jesus he delivered him to be crucified now this order seems a little bit different in some ways because it appears in another text that he scourged Jesus in order to appease the mob so that they would say, oh, well, he suffered enough. And then they wouldn't demand that he be crucified. And they would say, okay, release him. Because they would take pity on him. But it would appear, in the order of the context in Matthew, that maybe he was scourged after they already made this decision to release Barabbas. But like I said, I think the conversations were a lot longer than we're seeing in the text. And there's no reason to believe that they weren't longer. And the order might be slightly different. Because Matthew does put a lot of things in a different order. Because he's trying to put together a whole story. And maybe he just didn't think it was that important. And it really, to some degree, isn't. But when you see these conflicts, you need to admit that they're there. In the text, and we try to give you evidence so that if people say, "Oh, well, then why does he do this and why does he does that?" But if you keep your eye on the truth, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Then why would you be sending men with guns to your neighbor's house to force them to contribute so your kid you don't have to pay for your child's education? How is that love? You say, "Well, it's good that we all have a public school because otherwise kids won't get educated." My kids never went to public school. I paid for your public school while I was educating my kids at home and making a living manual labor out in the poorest county in Oregon. And my kids are all doing well. And I I actually helped other people teach their children. They couldn't get math. They would call me up. When I was at their house fixing uh, problems at their house, they would get me helping their kids with their homework. Because they couldn't understand it. And that was before New Man. <laughs> but, you know, you you don't put put in, you're not going to get out. And uh, and that, that, I tell you, love makes the difference. 
And it's just not loving your neighbor to force your neighbor to contribute to what you want for free. It's a covetous practice by this nature. And it will make you merchandise, and it has. It's returning you to the bondage of Egypt. It will entangle you again in the yoke of bondage. It has. It will curse your children with debt, which it has. So now I think it's about time to repent. So now if we get on to verse 27, this gets into the scarlet robe. And I really should do just a separate program on this because there's a lot of quotes concerning the scarlet robe. And this this is a confusion. What was this scarlet robe? What was the significance of that? Because other places it says purple robe, and other places it says gorgeous robe, and uh, you know, and, and then who's the soldiers? And, and it says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into a common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it, you know, kind of wove it, put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiments on him and led him away to crucify him. Now this this is a pretty quick event. He's suddenly being led away. When does Pilate take him before Herod? Didn't Pilate send him to go before Herod? Because we see that. Uh, so, we may be missing some pieces here. They may be out of order. And this is why I'm pointing out this chronology of Matthew. And, you know, Mark tells us a lot of stuff. But it's a shorter gospel. But it gives us a different chronology. So, this is why I said we really have to put all these quotes together and find out what what's really going on. what 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 is really happening? What is the real order? And... Uh, not read too much into it because it was at Roman soldiers uh, of the governor because now Herod Antipas is a governor too. Just a di- as far as the, the Greek word we see there translated governor. But anyway, so what soldiers? Because I think that although there could certainly be Roman soldiers that didn't like Jesus and would mock him and spit on him and everything, it's very clear that Pontius Pilate was being very respectful of Jesus. But the soldiers of Herod, I don't, I would not expect them to be respectful of Jesus. Because if Jesus Christ was king, and maybe he has already done it, it's just not, nobody accounted for it in the text. Although there is a place in the text where it suggests that soldiers weren't allowed to carry armaments in the temple anymore. Uh, there was not going to be any forced taxation, we know that. It's going to be free will offerings under King Jesus. He gave us all kinds of parables that this is what the good servant does. You know, how much do you owe? I owe this much. How much can you pay? I can only pay this much. Paid in full. That would be a great country if the IRS was doing that. <laughs> but the IRS is not 
the tax collectors of the kingdom of God. The tax collectors of the kingdom of God, that's the way they have to do it. But then you're not in the kingdom of God, so you better pay what the IRS tells you to pay. So, you know, just... There's different kinds of governments in the world. And one of them is not only in the world, but it's of the world. And the other one is in the world, but it's not of the world. And it operates by different means and method. And understanding those means and method will help you understand the kingdom. You can't jump into the kingdom because you've already become merchandise in the world. Now you want to come out of the world, and eventually there will be a time to say, come out of them uh, come out of Babylon, come out of them, my people, lest you be partakers of their sin. But if you don't want to be partakers of their sin while you're bound and still having to pay the tally of bricks, then start gleaning in the field at night and start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And I don't know how you can do that without organizing in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Besides that, I was commanded by Christ to make you do that. Just like the disciples were commanded to make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I can't make you contribute. I can't make you love one another. I can't make you forgive one another. But I can say that's what you need to do if you want to be free. If you want God to hear your prayers, that's what you need to do. You don't want to do that? I probably can't help you very much. That's just the way it is. And I'm not sure that, you know, God says that if you want to continue in that way, you can continue in that way. But go cry unto the gods that you have chosen for yourself. That's it's very clear. But anyway, the scarlet robe, they stripped him, put the scarlet robe on him, they mocked him, and then they put his own raiments back on him and led him away to be crucified in Matthew. That's the order we see. We see a little bit different order in other Gospels. There were more stuff going on, but Matthew was getting pretty long already, and so he didn't put those in. It doesn't mean they didn't happen. It just means he didn't say every little thing. In verse 32, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Now, Supposedly, if you do the Stations of the Cross or any of these kinds of things that people create as ways of prayer that Jesus never did things like that, those rituals. And you can do them if you want, but, you know, Jesus was going quite a ways. There was a little bit of time. I mean, Cyrene wasn't just standing outside the door. And and I'll just make a quick mention of it because we're headed up to Golgotha next. Is that Anybody who thinks that Jesus was walking down the street with a clearly sawed beam that is dadoed together (laughs) and absolutely flat cross with this long crisscross cross hanging out and he's dragging this behind him. Some people have estimated the, the weight of the cross was 80 pounds. I doubt it. But really, the cross he was carrying was probably the cross piece. It wasn't the upright. That's already up in Golgotha. We have holes up in Golgotha, in the stones, where you could drop a, uh, you know, a log, a pole, in the hole, and it would almost stand upright. If it wasn't a perfect fit, you would have to take wedges and pound them in to hold it steady. That was probably already up there. Now, you don't have to believe this. I'm just trying to show you that we've done a lot of homework and we see 
you know, some of this doesn't fit. I mean, you know, because uh, the Jehovah Witness says, oh, he wasn't crucified on a cross, he was crucified on a steros, because it says a stake. It doesn't say a cross, it says a stake. He was hung on a steros, a stake. But, I'm saying, and you can see relief of this, where guys are tied, prisoners of Rome, and they have a pole that their right hand is tied to and their left hand is tied to at the wrist with usually something like rawhide, could be woven material, but he's tied tight, so he can't get his right hand there to untie the knot. He can't get his left hand over on the other side to tie the knot because there's this pole going across his back. He can't run. He can't fight. You can take him out on the street and he's not going to outrun you. Not with that pole down the street. Anybody can grab that pole and spin around like a corkscrew. So that's... Romans are practical. That's what they were doing. They were probably that cross piece that he had to carry. And if he hadn't been beat and stayed up all night praying and sweating blood, he might not have been falling down. But if you fall down and you're tied up like that, you're going to fall flat on your face. You can't get your hands in front of you. And so they're going to make Simon Cyrene carried this cross piece. Yeah, I mean, it could have weighed 50 pounds. It might have weighed more. Because it could be a thick one. You know, heavier it is, less like you're going to run. But they're taking them out in the public streets when they have them in, in the prison and the square. He's not going to get out. There's guards at the doors and all this stuff. But now he's going out in the public streets and there's crowds. He's got supporters out there. They can try to set him free. But they see pretty quick that he is having a hard time making it. He's fallen, according to some, twice already, three times. And they cut him loose, whatever was tying him, whether it was rawhide strips or whether it was uh, some other small woven twine. They They cut it loose. The hand, the steros, the stake, the the pole to Simon Serene, and Jesus is allowed just to walk there. Which is actually kind of part of the fulfillment of the metaphor of, you know, Abraham and Isaac, you know, going up the mountain themselves. So... There goes Jesus up the mountain. But we see in verse 33, And when they were come unto the place called Golgotha, which is kind of the place of skulls, and I guess it says it here, <laughs> that is to say, a place of a skull. I sometimes forget where I read these. I've had that all in my mind. But anyway, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of, or spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them and upon my vesture to, did they cast lots? And sitting down, they watched him there. So he's been stripped of his garments again. Now, if we, we follow what Matthew seems to be saying. I say seems to. He says they put back on him his own raiments. This, this is a very abbreviated compared to the other Gospels. And, and you know, like I've I've got a footnote there where you can go read Luke twenty three, 
And, you know, Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him. Did Herod mock him? I don't think so. I think the soldiers mocked him, but I don't think Herod mocked him. And I'll tell you that later. And arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before they were at enmity between themselves. Pilate wanted to see Jesus set free. Pilate saw Jesus as a righteous man. He didn't just say a just person. He said a righteous person. He thought he was innocent. It wouldn't have anything to do with punishing him. But Herod, if we were to believe this verse in Luke, or at least the translation of the verse as we see it, it sounds like Herod was mocking him. I think it was the soldiers mocking him. I don't think Herod was mocking him. And like I say, I'll explain that at a later time. Because Herod and Pilate were agreed that this was a just man and a righteous man. Herod did not want even John the Baptist crucified. And yeah, other than Jesus calling Herod a fox, he didn't really say a lot of bad things about Herod. You know, but, uh, and John the Baptist was just warning Herod that, you know, you're not supposed to be with your brother's wife. But he didn't want him killed. It was his brother's wife that wanted him killed. Herod had a conscience, and I've told stories, so we won't go into it now, but there's a lot of stories out there that would also lead me. But just that verse alone in Luke suggests that Pilate and, and, and all the verses that we see where Pilate is defending Jesus, writing plaques. And he's going to get, you know, somebody wrote a letter to Tiberius saying that that uh, Pontius Pilate said that Jesus Christ was the king of the Jews. And we say we have no king but Caesar. And that letter was probably written and sent to Tiberius, but Tiberius died. But that may have had some play in why Pilate was recalled to Rome. But anyway, if we go on in uh, Matthew, like we said in 2735, that he parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of in the prophets. So they... They tore his garments up and they're casting lots for him. And so how is it valuable? Why would that cloth be so valuable? It's a rag once you tear it up. And they're casting lots because they want to get it. And remember, is that the gorgeous robe that we, we see talked about? You know, because we, we can see in, in, in Mark 24, 15, 24, and when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, that every man should take something of those robes. Why, why were they valuable in pieces? Well, there's a reason for that. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, and uh, let's see, that's in... Oh, okay, so that that's the prelude in Luke twenty three twenty four, where he says, and they parted his garments. But it's very interesting. That's always worthy to remind everybody. Jesus is forgiving the people who just pounded nails 
into his arms and feet. And he's forgiving them. It spit on him and did all these things. He's forgiving them. Are you that good at forgiving? I mean, I'm sure somebody's going to give you a hard time and you get to practice that. But yeah, let's practice that, everybody. That's your assignment this week. Go home and forgive people who are mean to you. I mean, really forgive them. Don't just pretend to forgive them. And, I, and, and to test that, how much will you give them? How much time will you give them? How much uh, will you be fair to them? You know, you figure it out. Because God's telling you. You just got to listen to him. So after they mocked him, they took his, took the robe off from him and put his own raiments on. So we'll deal with that in another place. And we'll look at the Greek and say, what the, what, what are they talking about there? Because Matthew may have got it wrong. But of course this is, Matthew got the essentials of the gospel right. If he got some sort of detail, a little bit out of order, didn't quite figure what was going on somewhere. I mean, he wasn't there. Somebody told him something. He may have got a story a little bit wrong. But the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what Matthew is telling us, it's there. John 19, 2, 3, all the way up into 5. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put on him a purple robe and said, Hail King. So those... Soldiers are mocking him, but we don't know really if those are Roman soldiers or uh, others. Pilate certainly wasn't, didn't want that, and it appears that Pilate wanted him scourged to get sympathy so that they wouldn't want to crucify him. So he was trying to do that as to save Jesus' life. Because he didn't want any more trouble because he could get recalled back to Rome. So anyway, It also talks about parting my raiments among them and for my vesture they did cast lots. And therefore the soldiers did. And that's in John 19.24. John has written so much different. But anyway, we'll get down here to the end and uh, I'll take a look back at the radio station. Oh, we've got lots of callers in there. Anyway, so he was mocked. But now we'll, we'll get into he's on Golgotha. He's being crucified. And we see in verse 37, and set up over his head this accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And I have a link there to King of the Jews where I already deal with all these quotes in another place. This is very significant that Pilate is writing this out. Like I said, I'm sure the Pharisees wrote a letter to Tiberius, to the emperor, that he shouldn't do this. You're our only king and all this kind of stuff. But And he's going to catch flack. He was a little afraid that there was going to be a riot, but he was willing to do this. That took courage. And it also shows that he really believed that Jesus was a just man. There was no reason to do that if he wasn't really in defense of Jesus. Because it was just, he knew it was going to make him angry. But he was getting a little upset at them. And so in verse 38, then were there two thieves crucified with him. One on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself if ye be the Son of God. 
come down from the cross. So they're, again, they're more mocking. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. He, if he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Because Jesus already talked about signs and wonders. And there was a reason. Christ is sealing the liberation of the people. Because he's the rightful king. Just the same as Moses was the rightful took Moses of Egypt. He actually owned those people. Jesus was the rightful king since David. So he had the right to fire the money changers. Uh, the Sanhedrin that he appointed, the 70 that he appointed, had no right to pr- pick the high priest. The high priest would be picked through the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And of course, Jesus said, organize yourselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because they did that, they not only survived, but they thrived during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Which is why this is the one place where he commanded that his disciples make the people do that. They were going to absolutely need that in the days to come. And I I believe they'll need it again. So they need to be doing that. Not to save themselves. But to be like Christ who came that others might be saved. And so they're, they're mocking him. And they say he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Of course we know that he wasn't... He didn't come to save himself. He came to save others by his sacrifice. By teaching us this willingness to love and sacrifice for one another. Because that's how you know the name of Jesus. Because his name, he is a savior by sacrifice. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, and he said, I am the Son of God. So now, back to the thieves. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Which means in their mouth. They're, they're making the same kind of accusations. Or at least, at least one of them was. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now we know that in other accounts of this there's an actual conversation between Jesus and the thieves. Matthew doesn't cover that. Again, an abbreviated look. He looked at all kinds of other things in details. But when we go through some of those others we will get that we will get a better picture of everything that happened. But you gotta some of the pieces over in this box and some of the pieces are in that box. But all together they they reveal the puzzle of the trial and, and crucifixion of Christ. In 46 he says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Loma Sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. What meaning Elias? Eli, Eli, Lama. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And rest said, Let be, 
Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Of course, that's not what Jesus was saying, but that's what they are interpreting it as. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So Matthew doesn't even tell us what he cried the next time. So there's a Matthew doesn't know a lot of what's going on on you know on that hill. Or at least he doesn't seem to relate it in his stories. But then of course he wasn't there. And he may not have known people that were there, like Mary and the beloved disciple, etc. But in fifty one It says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did shake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And when the centurion and they that were with him watching, Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women, so, you know, and be curious, where were the Pharisees? There's no account of the Pharisees running off. You know, they said, that we'll believe it if you give us a sign. And now he dies and there's all this earthquake and and so, what are they thinking? And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, and among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Hoses, and the mother of Zebedee's children. So, these are the people he lists that are there. Although he does say what appears to be many women. And and why women? Because the men are in jeopardy of being arrested if they show up. Because if they started showing up in any kind of a crowd, soldiers would say, you know, know, get back. You know, I'm giving you a lawful command and you don't want to be arrested. So, yeah, the men will have to stand afar off. But anyway, in 57 he says, When the even was come, there came a rich man, Arimathea, named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth. And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now, the next day that followed, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate and saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will arise again. 
I thought it was about the temple. So they know this, supposedly. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure, you know, guarded, until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people that he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way and make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Well, that sounds like he's, they're sending their own soldiers. You have a watch. Send your own soldiers. Is that what happened? Or should we read other accounts? Well, we will do just that. We will read other accounts, but we will not read other accounts today. I'm already well into this program. <laughs> and when I edit out all my fumbling, but we will have this chapter done. And the the next chapter will be chapter 28. And, of course, like I said, I've expanded the page on Barabbas, so I've got a lot more quotes, quotes on Barabbas. And the talking, since it is January 6th, this talking uh, points with insurrection and sedition. Same word. I mean, the word uh, stasis in, in the Greek is sedition. And the word stasis in the Greek is also translated insurrection. So it's, it's trans- translated all these different ways. But what is it? What, what does the word actually mean? And in theirs, it's defined as a standing, a station, a state, a condition. Insurrection can be an insurrection of strife, but it's taking a stand, as we would say in our modern language. It's, it's kind of taking a stand. And if that stand is different than other people, they will call it dissension. And it's also translated dissension in another place. It's even translated uproar in another place. But uh, we have all the places that Barabbas shows up on the page of Barabbas. So you can see all the places. Because it, it's, it's mentioned you know, like three times in Mark and only a few times in Matthew. And in Luke... There's talk of him and this sedition, but I don't think they even mention the, the name of Barabbas. But John does mention Barabbas, at least we see it twice. And there they they call him a robber. And and they use a slightly different word. Well, I shouldn't say it's slightly different. It's actually pretty pretty darn different, this idea of a robber. It's lestes is the Greek. And uh, it means thief or robber. And so what was he trying to steal uh, in insurrection? Was he trying to steal a position uh, of power? And, of course, that's actually what he was trying to do. So, anyway, I have that article. And uh, there's a few other, quite a few others that I expounded upon. But I think we've pretty well got Matthew done. Uh, Matthew 27 done. Then we still have to go to Matthew 28. And I'll have to prepare that for next week because it's not prepared now. And then we'll get on to John. So, going back to the station. Uh, still a number of people there in the queue. Don't see any hands up. Uh, so, nothing I can tell you more. So, all I can say is thanks for coming. Peace on your house and may God be with you. Join us on the network at preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org. God bless. 
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.